Are you ready? Are you shitty down? We're going to pull back the curtain on the divorce process, the mistakes and the missteps. How can couples navigate the divorce process? Can you still divorce in a healthy way? The conversation is as good as it gets. It's fun, insightful. It will change the way you think about your life and how to tackle life's challenges. The Shine On Podcast, season three. Episode 63 of The Shine On Podcast. I'm Evan Shine. On today's episode, I sit down with Sarah Shoppy Sullivan, professor of psychology at The Ohio State University. What an absolute treat it is to have her with us on today's episode. This interview is one you don't want to miss, and it's coming up after the docket and the Ask Evan segment. Producer Dave, I know you're chomping at the bit. You're fired up as per usual, and you're ready to get into the docket. All right, counsel, let's do it. And now, let's see what's on the docket. First item on the docket, Evan, comes to us from Psychology Today. Item one. Headline reads, resist, refuse dynamics in divorce. How can they be analyzed? This piece ponders the question, if a child rejects a parent, is it parental alienation, estrangement, or what? What do you think, Evan? Hey, first, what an absolutely fantastic article by Bill Eddy lawyer and therapist and a senior family mediator at the National Conflict Resolution Center in San Diego. Bill is also the training director of the High Conflict Institute. So when Bill speaks, you should listen. I often hear so much about parental alienation. My spouse is alienating the child. There's parental alienation going on here. Now, this article by Bill Eddy really gets into exactly what parental alienation is. And often, look, this concept is thrown around far too often, and it's often misunderstood by both parents and professionals. Dave, I know we have talked about alienation on prior episodes, the concept of alienation. We've also talked about concepts such as gaslighting and narcissistic behavior. These are very real and important things to pay attention to and to be addressed, but at times parents think alienation is happening but something else is actually going on. So Dave, let me ask you, have you heard from people who might be separating in the middle of a custody litigation, going through a divorce, they might not be able to get their child or children to spend time with him or her. And they say the first thing that must be happening is their child is being alienated by the other spouse. I have, and I've seen it where it's been illusory as you refer to Evan and that you know, a lot of times it's such a stressful time. We might fear the worst. We might fear there's something going on that we don't know about. It's the fear of the unknown. What is my spouse saying to my son or daughter when I'm not there to defend myself? And then sometimes the fears are founded. Of course, unfortunately, sure. I do have I do have a friend where, well, at least according to his version <laughs> version of the story, his 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 ex wife really blamed everything on this guy. And it took some, it took a couple years for him to 100% sort of get his son back. But my advice to him, I, who knows whether it was good or not, but it's like in time when children grow, they learn and they start to see the picture for what it is. That's what I found. Yeah, no, David, a lot of things that we're seeing now and, and things that are being 
appointed by the courts is, is something called reunification therapy, really a therapeutic approach. When you have situations where there is very serious alienation that's happening and alienation that's occurring, you're looking for a mental health path forward. A lot of times the court system, it's difficult to see if it's happening. And even if it is happening, how to address it, how to fix it. And very often it takes a therapeutic resolution and therapeutic approach to figuring out exactly what the plan is going forward. Item two, Evan, comes to us from Yahoo News. Item two. Headline reads, my ex and I have lived in the same house since our divorce. Here's how we make so-called nesting work. Unusual topic, Evan, and sort of counterintuitive to what we think of when we think of, of divorce, but I've heard about this nesting thing, and I heard it can work. We haven't talked about it on the show too much, I don't think. What do you think about this piece, Evan? Well, Dave, I spent last week, two days in court, arguing why nesting was, was terrible for mm -hmm. my client and the children in particular. So, you know, the article comes at a fitting time, but nesting works in many different ways. And this article is written by Beth Barrett, the author of Nesting After Divorce, Co-Parenting in the Family Home. And it's about her very positive experience with the nesting arrangement. And we've talked about it before where nesting is an arrangement where the children continue to reside in the marital home and the parents rotate in and out of the home, depending on whose night it is to be with the children. The parents will often share a small apartment, a second home that they rotate in and out from. Now the logic is there and I get it. It's grounded in consistency, stability, and a belief that it's easier for the children to move around and rotate than for their children to bounce in and out and transition between homes, especially in the early stages of a divorce, which is such a big and important time of transition. And there's so much going on. And look, Beth talks a lot about the benefits of nesting and also the impact on her co-parenting relationship, which was a positive impact in terms of the nesting arrangement. But in my experience, Dave, nesting is not for everyone. And when it works well, it usually works, but only for a short period of time or a limited fixed duration, either during the divorce action or time period, let's say three months or six months until there's a resolution on who gets the house, what the, what the custody arrangement is going forward. And look, there's positives. As Beth explains, don't get me wrong. And it can absolutely work in the right situation. Skeptics of nesting will point to the lack of privacy, confusion for the children, and that in order for it to work, it takes a very good co-parenting relationship and mutual respect of both parents for it to even be a consideration. And Dave, as we talked about in the early stages of divorce, that's a very, very hard thing. For sure. We didn't do nesting when my wife and I separated, but we did have an arrangement where I was welcome in, I had moved out and I was welcome in the marital home where she remained. And I came by in the early going every day. I tried to spend a couple hours in the afternoon with the kids before I went back to the apartment. And we did it probably out of the same reason a lot of people tried this nesting. It's because you're trying desperately to keep things normal for the children. The fact of the matter is there's no perfect solution. No matter what you do, there's a big change coming. And so I can see that point where it's like you're sort of just delaying the inevitable. The kids could get confused. So it's my, my advice, not that anyone asked, but my advice is try to find something that works and that and it makes it comfortable, but don't, don't force something just because 
you think it's a panacea for the confusion and the and the unsettling nature of this period because it's just going to be that way. Indeed, what works for one family does not necessarily mean it will work for another. We now move on to Ask Evan. Ask Evan. Ask Evan. Ask Evan. As we do here on the show, we hear from you, the listener, with questions for Evan. This question comes to us from Joan in New Rochelle, New York. Joan writes, Dear Evan, my husband and I are in the process of a divorce. He recently landed a job in Chicago, and I fear that he wants to move there with my son. Can he do that? The thought of it scares me to death. Great question, and I appreciate you sending it in. Look, I absolutely appreciate your concern, and I understand the fear, and I understand what's going through your mind. But rest assured, your husband, even if he has a job in another city, another state, he simply can't just pick up and move with your child out of state. Likely, he's going to need to file an application in New York seeking court permission. Of course, absent an agreement that you consent otherwise, seeking court permission to relocate with your child to the state of Illinois. Now, of course, you can move and you can figure out a parenting schedule based on the realities of the geographical distance where perhaps your child remains here in New York in New Rochelle with you and you figure out a parenting plan that works based on your husband's work schedule and the fact that he's moving out of state. Our featured guest on this week's episode of the Shine On Podcast is Professor Sarah Shampi Sullivan. Sarah is a professor of psychology and a faculty affiliate of the Institute for Population Research at The Ohio State University. She's a member of the board of the Council on Contemporary Families and directs the Children and Parents Lab at Ohio State. Sarah, it's absolutely fantastic to have you with us on the podcast as the featured guest on today's episode. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Let's dive right into family relationships and family dynamics, which is an area of focus for you. And let's right. start with parenting, which is no walk in the park. What is the most common mistake people make when it comes to parenting? That's a good question. I, I, I think a lot of parents feel like they make a lot of mistakes all the time because there's a lot of pressure on parents today, I feel like, to do all of these things to make sure their children are not only getting to school and have clothes to wear, but you're eating certain foods or doing the right kinds of extracurricular activities to promote their future educational opportunities and things like that. So, I, but I take kind of a different view. I mean, I think that the biggest mistake is to focus, for parents to focus too much time on some of those details. In families, you have maybe one uh, one or two parents. This is to try to manage all of these details of your child's life and to try to make sure everything goes well is a Herculean task, really. And parents are people, too. They have their own lives, their own needs, their work, their careers, hobbies and interests. And I think the biggest mistake parents make is actually trying to do all of those things and losing sight of what I think is the most important aspect of parenting which is to develop a close, a warm relationship with your child. You use the word pressure. And I want to ask you about that because okay. I hear people say all the time, there's so much pressure today when it comes to raising children and parenting. There's so much more pressure now than in the past. So is it that there's more pressure when it comes to raising children or is it 
a different type of pressure in the year 2023, given everything going on in the world, that may be a different type of pressure. I think it's more pressure and also different types of pressure. I would say both are, are true. In the past, there's so many changes that have happened over the past 50 to 100 years in U.S. society, including that for, for children even, the path to adulthood is not as certain as it once was in terms of a timeline and what you do when and you know, what your adult life is necessarily going to look like. So that introduces a lot of uncertainty. Other scholars have pointed to increasing income inequality as contributing to parents' worries about what kind of life their children are going to have or be able to have. And that can make parents feel pressured to, to ensure their children's success in multiple domains. I also think that, I mean, a lot of things about parenting have changed, um, say, since maybe the, the 19, 1950s, which I think is what a lot of people look back to as, as a particular time period in history with a nuclear family and mothers and fathers having different roles and things like that. I mean, but that's all changed. I mean, the vast majority of mothers of young children in the United States work for pay outside the home. That's a big change that's happened since the 1960s. And so most parents are trying to balance work and careers alongside raising children. So that has, I think, increased pressure, certainly. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot more I could say about that. Too. I don't know if that's helpful. But yeah, I think that there there is a lot of pressure. I think sometimes parenting researchers like myself, we can inadvertently contribute to pressure on parents as well. Because our research tends to focus on one particular aspect of a child's development or a child's life. And we draw conclusions like it's better to do A than B. But, you know, this is on average across hopefully a large sample of parents and children. And it doesn't mean that if you can't accomplish this one thing that your child's life is going to be ruined. But sometimes I think that that's the impression that concerned conscientious parents get. Sure, absolutely. That's incredibly insightful. And Sarah, you mentioned an area of focus, research for you, that researchers contribute to sort of the pressure that parents may feel at times. One of the areas of your study and focus is the father-child relationship. Yes. What is it about that relationship in particular that you find interesting? Well, when I was first starting to do research when I was in graduate school, I found uh, father-child relationships fascinating because there just was such little research on them. And when I was growing up, my father was very involved in my life and very important to me and, at least in my own view, very influential on my own development. And I was really surprised that the vast majority of research was mothers, 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 mothers. And there were just uh, a handful of researchers starting in the 1970s who had who had begun to conduct research studies with fathers and children in many of the same ways that researchers had been focusing on mothers and children. And so I, I wanted to kind of jump into that because I thought it was an area in which I could contribute and also because I thought it was sorely needed. What is something interesting that has come out of that research based on what you've discovered? I think what's really interesting is that there uh, are both similarities and differences between the ways in which typically, you know, on average, fathers and mothers parent children. So 
There is uh, some research suggesting that, again, typically fathers uh, are more likely to engage um, or spend, I should say, relatively greater percentage of their time that they spend with children doing playful things, playing games, eat, playing outside, rough and tumble play, especially, or roughhousing, play wrestling, those kinds of things. They spend a greater proportion of their time in play than mothers do. It doesn't mean mothers don't play with children, though. Of course, they do, too. And some mothers like to roughhouse with children, so we should keep that in mind. But that is one way that, on average, fathers and mothers' time with children may differ. On the, on the flip side of that, even when mothers work full-time for pay outside the home, they tend to do more, still tend to do more of the, the caregiving-type parenting behaviors with infants and young children who need those. So I think they're both similarities and differences. There's a lot of overlap, but there's some distinctions. And I think that actually studying fathers not only helps us better understand fathers, but it helps us actually better understand mothers and parenting in general, because it kind of takes us out of this view where we're just looking at parenting through the sort of stereotypical lens of what we think of as a mother. And I think all of us have this idea of what a good mother is. And when we think about it, we're like... Are most mothers exactly like that? Maybe not. But but this idea of being totally devoted to your kids and doing certain activities. And and so I think that actually studying fathers suggests that, wow, kids need a variety of different interactions and inputs in order to develop in a healthy way and that they can get those from multiple people, right? They can get those and maybe they tend to get something from fathers and something else from mothers, but it doesn't have to be that way. But what we know now is that the universe of ways in which parents can contribute positively to children's development is is bigger, is perhaps bigger and more varied than than the research decades and decades ago reflected. You've written on the subject of maternal gatekeeping. Tell us what that is and why is it important? Yes, maternal gatekeeping. It's something that I often get asked about. It's probably the most controversial thing I've studied because maternal gatekeeping is uh, defined as a collection of beliefs and behaviors that mothers may hold that can either facilitate or encourage fathers to be more involved in parenting or can inhibit or thwart fathers from being more directly involved in parenting. And so it kind of gives the the notion of gatekeeping recognizes, I would say the notion of gatekeeping acknowledges that in many families still, mothers take primary responsibility for the daily sort of caregiving and routines of parenting young children. And therefore that can place them in this role where they have control over the other parent's involvement. It it doesn't mean that only mothers can gatekeep. Fathers could certainly gatekeep too. Grandparents can can gatekeep. It's it's not something that's solely the domain of mothers, but in in many families, if someone is going to be gatekeeping or, or encouraging or discouraging the other parent's involvement, then that is likely to be a mother, if that makes sense. That makes all the sense of the world. And it's fascinating because I see gatekeeping in the context of what I do when parents are going through a divorce. So when there's a child custody dispute or when parents are negotiating different things related to a parenting agreement or a custody agreement, how to make decisions, very often it comes up where one parent is gatekeeping and restricting access or controlling the other parent's access time or involvement with the child. You see it from a different perspective when essentially parents are together 
But it's mm-hmm. interesting to me because in those situations, parents are together, they're parenting their child, but oftentimes the fallout may be in the context of a divorce when parents need to learn to co-parent and work together and one parent may not be in a position to exercise that control that he or she is used to and accustomed to during the marriage. Yeah, I think that makes it makes total sense. It's interesting in the research literature how there are folks who study divorce and co-parenting after divorce. And then there are folks like me who who study it in couples that are together and married or in a in a romantic cohabiting relationship. I do think that what is interesting to me too is that if mothers are acting as gatekeepers, especially in the negative sense in terms of inhibiting father's involvement, our research shows that then early on fathers are less involved in parenting their infants and young children and the quality of their interactions with their children is actually go, actually goes down the more mothers gatekeep and criticize them and so forth. So what I think is especially that might not be so bad if the couple stays together, right? I mean, it might be like these are our roles. The people might it might not be what they had what the father might not be as involved as he thought he would be, but maybe folks reconcile themselves to it. But then if the relationship breaks up or there's a divorce, then that father is going to be in an especially bad position to advocate for, I think, for himself in terms of time with the child. And if he is able to do that, then I, I agree with you that I think that the the mother in that case might really be resistant, resistant to it. So I think that there's more continuity in dynamics across when fo- couples are together versus divorced or together versus broken up than we sometimes think there is. I don't think these issues necessarily come out of nowhere. Absolutely. It's such a great point. So I want to ask you about academic achievement for children. And you hear so much about how involved should parents be? Should we leave it to the teachers, the professors, or should parents play a very involved role in their children's academic life? Your thoughts? That's a very tricky question. Now, most of my research focuses on infants and young children up to about the age of five or six. So when I've done research on parental involvement and especially father's involvement in educational activities with children, a lot of the things that I'm looking at are reading reading to children, which is pretty much universally acknowledged as a, a supportive parent practice that will promote children's ultimate academic achievement and educational success. Like that there there that is a form of involvement that I I don't believe you could read too much to your children, probably unless it's interfering with other <laughs> activities. Other things like when especially when children are young, knowing children's teachers, being involved at school, going to curriculum night, those kinds of things are all positive things that fathers and mothers can do to remote children's education, uh, playing educational games with kids, as long as it's fun. I mean, I think that's the thing where parents can get tripped up is this is not the, the parent involvement literature is not necessarily advocating for making your children do additional flashcards sure. or or that kind of intensive training. But if you can make learning fun and and sort of infuse your daily life with opportunities for learning and reading and board games and and walking around your, it doesn't have to cost money, walking around your neighborhood and looking at trees and birds and animals and talking about them. So a lot of conversations with 
children uh, are also very valuable. I think when children get older is when the issue of parental involvement becomes more difficult. As children get more homework, involving yourself with children's homework can be very difficult to do in such a way that you're actually promoting their academic achievement and not making them dislike math more potentially than they already did. (laughs) So I do think that as children get older, parents, well, definitely being engaged in the sense that they're aware of what's going on and if their child is struggling in some way that they observe that they do intervene they do talk to a teacher while the child's still in K K through 12 and things like that but i think that ideally what you'd see is that the parents can relax a little bit as the child is getting older and into adolescence and is developing more autonomy and that's where some parents, again, get tripped up, I think, in part because of this pressure that they feel to help their children succeed, to do better than they did, and and to basically make their way in, in a highly competitive world. And I think then sometimes parents get into trouble because they remain so involved with their children, even as their children are are growing up and are supposed to be able to make some of their own decisions. They're supposed to be, they they need to get practice doing that, right? Even though sometimes they're going to make poor decision. We can't prevent them forever from making poor decisions. So I think that's, that's a tricky thing. Sarah, you mentioned the influence of your father. Yes. Growing up. Do you draw from your own personal experiences with families when it comes to your work? Yes, definitely. I would say that my experiences in my own family were one of the reasons I decided to go into this general area of research to begin with, not just father-child relationships, but also my interest in co-parenting. My parents uh, had very wildly different approaches to parenting. I would say my mom was very warm and loving, and but anything went with her. I mean, she was not good at punishing or or holding the line when it came to boundaries and things like that. I was a pretty easy kid to parent, I think, but I don't think (laughs) you would dispute this at all. My brother was not. He was more difficult, I think, from a young age, and he really pushed some of her buttons in some ways. But whereas my father, who was very involved and cared a great deal about our education, and, and that's the way I think he had a major influence on me, he was more stern, a little more authoritarian, and really wanted to control a lot of things we did and and to try to prevent us from making any mistakes and things like that. So it was a it was a weird balance to kind of navigate growing up, I would say. And my parents often got into disagreements about parenting, chilled, chilled us, especially, I would say, well, me too. They they went off and they just didn't see eye to eye. They didn't necessarily value the same things. I mean, sometimes they did, but sometimes they didn't. So when I heard of this concept of co-parenting and especially just conflict between parents, I thought, oh, wow, people study this? Like, that's interesting because this really gels with my experience a lot. Let me ask you about that experience. When did you realize, as you think back, that your parents had such different views and values when, when it came to the parenting you and your brother? I think I, I, I realized it. I mean, this is very personal. I don't mind sharing it, though. I'll just, I'll just, okay. this is like, you can edit this. Yeah. Say both my parents are deceased. <laughs> I, don't, I don't feel like they're going to be upset by me saying this, the beyond <laughs> or anything. 
I will say that actually, I remember, so my parents had, what I'm implying here is that my parents had a lot of arguments growing and some, and a lot of them did center on parenting. They also argued about other things as well. I remember being a very small child and getting out of bed, like two or three years old and walking down the hallway because my parents were arguing downstairs and being very worried about it. Like I have a very clear memory, a very early memory of that. I don't think I understood what they were arguing about at the time or anything like that, but I knew that they were, they had a lot of arguments. And I think when I really started to realize it though, was when I was maybe middle school aged and issues would come up regarding like, again, increasing autonomy. I was a a girl and, oh, I want to go do this thing, or I want to go to this dance, or I want to go, and they would not agree about it in that way or I want to wear this particular thing, or I want to just those kinds of issues, or whether whether it would be appropriate to quit an activity or a sports team or something like that. Like my mom would be like, oh, it's no big deal. You don't have to do But my father would think that was like the, you couldn't do that. That was not okay. That was, that was the end of the world. So they really, I think, kind of actually started to grow apart in terms of their, some of their values. I don't, as, as their kids got older, I think that did happen. In Tara, recent years, you hear so much about how certain parents have come under criticism for helicopter parenting. Is this phenomenon still a problem? Yes. It's interesting. I mean, it's still a phenomenon for sure. I would say the college admission scandal, for example, of a couple of oh. years ago is, is a great example of helicopter parenting. Sometimes it's called snowplow parenting in that way as well. There are a lot of terms for it. It's a style of parenting in which parents are exercising control in areas of their children's lives that typically have been thought of as areas in which children should be exercising greater autonomy and independence as they grow up. So they tend to want to make decisions for children and also to remove any obstacles in children's way. That's why I bring up the admission scandal, because doing illegal things to get your kids into college <laughs> is, is a great example of removing obstacles, right? Um, if, as long as you don't get caught, I suppose. But no, no, I'm not advocating that. Don't, don't worry. As you might suspect, there is research to suggest that, especially once kids get, get to college age or, or out of high school, that that level of parental involvement can be maladaptive for for young people. It's it's a lot. It's a lot. But there is research to suggest that it does depend on how children interpret it. Do they interpret it as loving and warm parent behavior? Then it, there's some evidence it might not be as damaging as if children interpret it as I'm in college now. Why the heck is my my mom still tracking me on on her phone or still tracking my phone or something? If if the adult child or the adolescent child perceives it as interfering, that makes it a lot more likely that it's going to potentially be damaging. So I think that there's still a lot of research going on about about helicopter parenting. I definitely think it's still a phenomenon. I think that one reason parents do it is because of this pressure we've been talking about. I don't think that most parents are doing it and trying to remove obstacles to get out of their children's way because they because that's what they want to do with their free time. I think it's because they're they're concerned for their children's future and they don't want them to to make mistakes or they don't want them to not have every single opportunity. I think that's a that's a that's a good parental instinct to have. 
But the downside is that, again, the ultimate goal of parenting, now people can differ in their view of this, but one perspective on the goal of parenting is to raise children that grow up to be relatively independent. Hopefully they still have good, close relationships with family, but you want to launch them. If you want to launch them eventually, then they need to have the skills and the ability to make their own decisions and to live with the results of those decisions. So I think that's the that's the danger in in the helicopter parenting or any form of what we what we call it is over parenting. <laughs> so okay. yeah. And I started the podcast by saying parenting is no walk in the park and obviously it's incredibly challenging. What would you say to a parent that in the toughest times, the most challenging times should be the best thing, the best part of being a parent? I would hope that the best part of being a parent is is being able to, oh, this is a really hard question. This was the one on your list. I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> Even in the tough times, the best part of being a parent, I, I would hope that parents always find enjoyment in their children's company. That's what I would hope, that they can see positive things in their children, that they can revel in and and wonder at the the people their children are and are becoming. I know that for me, that's one of the best parts of being a parent. I have one daughter, she's 17, and the best moments are when she says something or she does something that makes me laugh or or makes me feel proud of her or but it doesn't have to be a major thing. It's just a little thing she'll say. She's very funny. And I I just treasure that. I think, oh, gosh. And sometimes I feel like I haven't had so much of an influence on her, but I just have the pleasure of her company. Like she just is with us for this this period of time, living with us at least. And we get to have this amazing person in our house. So I think that just trying to look at positive things and trying to enjoy the time you have, I think is what I would rec recommend because they do grow up. I mean, everybody says it, it goes the, what are they? <laughs> the days are long, but the years are short. And they, I can't believe that our daughter will be finishing high school next year. I can't believe it at all. So I think that if you can enjoy some of the small moments that that's probably where it's at. No, it's incredible advice. And let's go from influence as a parent to influence that you have on your students in the classroom as a professor. Why is it that you find it so important to mentor students? Well, mentoring students really is my favorite part of the job, I have to say. I mean, I like doing science for sure, but I especially like introducing students to the science of families and the idea that this is something you can do research on. And it's important to me on the one hand, because I get to nurture the next generation of researchers who are going to do research, not necessarily even in this area. I mean, I work with undergraduate students, especially the undergraduate students who go on to do lots of different things. Maybe they go to graduate school, maybe they don't. Many of them are interested in working directly with families as counselors or in social work and, and so forth. But I get to kind of introduce them to the the idea of doing systematic research on families for the first time. I get to share my enthusiasm for it. I get to share a little bit of how I came to this this career and 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 why I do it and what what I like about it. In terms of my graduate students, I mean, really, they're they're my legacy in terms of. But I don't mean in terms of, you know, that they necessarily do the same thing that I do. Like a lot of professors want their students to be sort of carbon copies of them. And that's something that I've really 
really try not to do because there are a lot of career options and a lot of paths that my students have taken. And I think they're they're happy with the experience they had working with me for the most part, I hope. That's my hope. I hope that they they had a good experience because grad school, especially getting a PhD, can be really tough. I mean, any kind of graduate really study tough, yeah. is, can be really grueling. And so I hope they had a good experience and I hope that they can use the skills that they you know, gain to in, in, in whatever they decide to do in the future. So I, I just find it really rewarding. And I love I love getting to know students and getting to I don't know, I feel like it keeps you young. <laughs> Absolutely. And Dr. Sarah Shampi Sullivan, this was absolutely fantastic. I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. Your work, invaluable, your focus, your research, all the help that you provide to families and parenting and to your students. It's incredible. It was a pleasure having you on. Thank you. Episode 63. What a show. Great document and fantastic ass Kevin segment orchestrated by the one and only producer Dave of the legendary Pod 617. Professor Shara Shopee Sullivan, professor in the Department of Psychology at The Ohio State University. Absolute gold. You can listen to the podcast and all major podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, including Pod 617, the Boston. Podcast Network, Living Shine, and I'll talk to you again real soon.